listening to the New Century Multiverse, The Princess Thieves. Chapter 2 Outlaws and Awakening The two highwaymen, one considerably less dandy than the other, beat a hasty escape, drawing pursuers as they did so. There were three kinds of watchmen to be found in this London of 1883. Firecasters were the most intimidating, as being the gifted, chosen, and empowered, they were actively encouraged to reiterate, on a daily basis, the awe-inspiring magical supremacy of the dwarf race. What this boiled down to on most days was the bullying of shopkeepers, turning out the hiding places of disreputable types, and setting smallish freestanding structures on fire to keep the locals in line. London had already partially burned down in a second great fire which had still been raging when the dwarf first appeared, so it was seen as somewhat portentous. The sons of flame summoned to this world to be its rulers, but what this equated to was that after ten years of rebuilding, nobody wanted everything burned down yet again. This was why these lawmen rarely set light to one of the houses, shops, or factories that connected down a line of similar buildings, lest the blaze carry itself beyond the control of the firecasters present at the scene. This exalted military police force wore intricately detailed armor of deep maroon and iron gray. It was forged with Karenite, an alloy from their own world, resistant to heat and rather dense, though they still had to watch out for their own clothes and hair when igniting and casting firebolts. The second kind of watchmen were the heavies. Like the firecasters, these fellows wore armor of the sort England had not seen in use for centuries, only these suits took those ancient designs to new heights with complex, overlapping plate layers to allow for greater protection and freedom of movement. Topped with aggressively forward-pointing helmets, it made each heavy a formidable fighting unit. Heavies also carried a variety of hand weaponry. Short swords, cudgels, studded gauntlets for greater punching, and occasionally bows and crossbows. The Dwart, by and large, had deliberately avoided the rifles and pistols that the humans employed in Kelador. This was partly because their armor deflected a great deal of oncoming bullets, so this semi-imperviousness combined with their own indifference to guns discouraged human dependence. It was also partly out of deference to their magic users, whose literal firepower they saw as being far superior. Guns, after all, had not saved the human race from the Barghest. Fire had. The third kind of watchmen wore wool coats and were considerably more swift. They were a relatively new measure introduced to a city where sneak thieves, pickpockets, footpads, and cat burglars were commonplace. The heavies could not catch these criminals. The firecasters could not hit them without collateral damage, so units were trained in sprinting, climbing, and navigating the labyrinthine streets, alleys, and rooftops of London. Their greatest weapon was communication over medium distances, drawing more support to their position with coded whistleblows. Once several had set upon a single fleeing target, that person would be stopped very quickly. The small, thin batons they wielded were reinforced with caronite, and when employed sharply against the bones of hands and knees, their quarry soon found fast foot travel not only immediately impossible, but a serious unlikelihood in the long term. 
These dwarves were initially dubbed the Street Response Squads, but over time a new name had sprung up that had eclipsed this one and held fast. So now even their official city authority term was the Grabbers. It was several of these Grabbers that broke free from the heavy patrol in the Ravenscourt Park area where Robin and Little John had been conducting their daring holdup and gave chase through the afternoon sun. The outlaws knew better than to charge down the middle of the street in broad daylight. That would get every authority figure and well-to-do onlooker unified in a grand effort to cease their escape, so they wove and threaded their way through back gardens, mantling over fences and shimming up drain pipes. When they crossed roads, it was done under bridges after trotting alongside carriages, tipping imaginary hats to the disgruntled passengers. London was fine this afternoon, and the extensive puddles of rainwater from last night's downpour, which collected in the pitted and uneven streets, reflected a blue sky upon their gravy-brown surface. The walls of the surrounding buildings were brick, mottled and patched with mortar and blackened with soot. The wood of the shutters was old and frequently repurposed from older constructions, painted with sharply pungent tar to keep out the damp. Shop fronts and doors bore faded paint in green and red, with stenciled lettering in brash yellow or filthy white, and at the middle and end of every street stood an unlit lamppost of black iron. Barrels and crates were piled high, and the ropes from cranes for pulling stock to higher floors hung down above the street like the vines of a slate jungle. The people dressed in thick layers of wool, linen, cotton, and leather, mostly in dark colors, which hid the dirt better. Clothing was designed to last and protect, though cut in a fashion that in many ways mimicked the fineries of the rich. Waistcoats were popular, along with long coats, jackets, braces, shirt sleeves, shawls, ties, and sturdy boots or shoes. Nearly everyone wore a hat, from a selection of flat caps, bonnets, bowlers, and bedraggled toppers. They were now far from the beautiful plumage of the highborn Dwart gentry that might traverse the streets of Mayfair or Westminster, those now occupying the former houses of the mutton-chopped masters of the fallen empire. Instead, these places were peopled mostly with humans. Here and there, those Dwart of severely meager means walked among them, and towering over both species lumbered the Akka, grim-faced, heavy laborers who were almost always found living and working in the poorest areas. Those with a keen eye might spot pieces of ancient or tribal jewelry, items of clothing made from the hide of animals not of this earth, and metal fastenings hewn in exotic fashion. The air was laden with snatches of conversation in rough cockney tongues, and the aromas were resplendent of tannery lime, flood damage, glue rendering, fish deliveries, chimney smoke, and engine steam. Robin and Little John made their way southward to the banks of the Thames, seeking out the louder industrial areas which might mask shrieking whistleblows, always aware of the movement of dark blue pursuing smudges in the periphery of their vision. They alternated as they went, between a pantomime of casual behavior within small crowds and bolting off at sudden angles when the herd thinned out. This was obviously easier for Robin, who could disappear below the neckline of humans standing close together, whereas Little John loomed many feet above them. Robin snatched, first a towel and then later a tablecloth from washing lines to drape over his companion and obscure that lofty, green-hooded head. Finally, they had scattered the grabbers enough so that taking refuge in the opening of a coal chute drew their closest pursuer in. The watchman landed quietly in the rear yard, his sharp eyes searching. He was not much older than Robin, and his clipped moustache twitched as he detected a trace of sweat on the breeze. Robin leapt out of his crouch in the shadows and snatched away the whistle as it neared the fellow's lips, elbowing him in the gut to knock the wind from him as he was yanked into the darkness of the coal chute. They left him unconscious after relieving him of his wallet, 
Uninjured, save for some heavy bruising, as Robin always declined the temptation to met out the kind of life-altering damage that potential captors would gladly and enthusiastically inflict upon the hooded men. He considered this practice distasteful. One by one, they trapped and overcame three more of the grabbers, stowing them deep and dark around the dockyards and the gardens of the rowing club. They slowed to a walk by the bank of the Thames, as the hundreds of slow-moving barges crawled past and off into the distance, sliding through the grey, torpid waters. Finally, under Hammersmith Bridge, satisfied that their getaway had been clean enough, they inspected the spoils of the day. Next time, less of the theatrics and more of the intimidation. I'll take the lead. I can put the guy's head in my mouth. Can't rephrase? And you shake them down. We use the fear and mistrust of the Akka to our advantage. You took far too long there. For the practical necessities of a robbery, yes. But not for building on a legend. That's just what I'm worried about, Rob. You keep focusing on building this image and the little brat will be right. You're gonna let your heart run places your head ain't going. You're gonna get caught. I'm not giving up the Robin Hood persona. You can forget that. You scare me with this kind of talk, Rob. You ain't him. They never caught Robin Hood. They never killed him. And most of all, he was beloved. The name and the reputation built on centuries of mythology will grease all kinds of wheels. It will make the people we rob from fear us and move faster with less fuss. And the more we give back to the poor, the bigger our support network. It's not money, power, women like all those other clumsy oafs in the outlaw game imagine. It's money, generosity, status, women, and a whole city of the downtrodden who think we're the dog's bollocks. They cheer for us. You've heard that. Were you ever cheered for prior to this? But that's just it. This seems to be more about you. Piss them off enough and they'll come after you with everything they've got. There's already a 50 gold reward on your head. Fifty gold? I shall have to drive that up a bit. Soon it shall be a hundred, and we shall be infamous. Not at all what I want. Can we just go incognito for the next few? Let the heat die down a little? Oh, my dear John, the heat is the sharp opposing edge of everything we're doing this for. All that ire we're causing? That just means that those in charge are getting angrier, and the people have more and more to be hopeful about. It means we're doing something right. Right? We must have different dictionaries. Look, if you want to talk getting sloppy, what was taking that girl's dolly? You heard her. <sighs> yes, I did. She was a tiny little hate-filled sack of racist rhetoric with a face that looked like a scowling white testicle. And she deserved to have her dolly stolen. But I'm trying to figure out if that was your pride acting out or your kleptomania. It's not the kleptomania. Yeah, we got plenty of things of genuine value here. And What's this? It's, um the handle off the door of the carriage. Did you tear this off in a rage? Will you be less mad if I say yes? Yes. And I'm giving you my best piercing look right now. Look at my face. This is, this is it. No. You're right. I stole it. Why? I don't know. I'm worried about you too, old chum. I don't know how else to say it or how many repetitions until it really sinks in. Look, next time you feel like you're going to take something that we can't use or just plain don't need, can you just give me a keyword or something? It's... it's such a shameful habit. I know, but on the other hand, we're thieves. We take things. Your average person won't be able to tell the difference. No, I mean... for me. Oh, you mean as an archer. 
God, you know how much I hate that stereotype. I would never... But you can see why it would bother me. Yes. Yes, I can see. And I do understand. <sighs> well then, the code word is handle. So you want me to somehow slip that in the conversation if I feel like I'm weakening? And I'll help you, John. I'll play the time or something. Improvise. Okay. Really okay? Yes. I want to get better. But that's another thing right there. You need to call me Oberon when we're out of earshot of the public. Oberon. I get the whole alias thing. But I don't need to live it every minute. Certainly. Oberon. Thank you, Robin. Seven days left. The next morning was a Sunday. At Buckingham Palace, the princess, now 17 years of age, was woken by Viola with some semi-exciting news. Not over much had changed in this room over the past eight years, but a few things that would prove to be very important for this story had developed. Ah, beautiful day. I'm opening the curtains to let in some sunlight, your royal highness. You can't lay there all day, slothful and indolent. The Lord Aaron craves an audience with you. I'm going to open a window. It reeks like nine different cats in here. Ten. Sebastian is under here with me. And one doesn't feel like visiting with Lord Aaron today, thank you very much. If it helps, I think he brought a present. What shape was it? Ah, well, get dressed and come with me and you'll find out. Was it egg-shaped? It was. On, on the eggy side, yes. Oh, buggeration. How many of these rotten things does he think I want? Oh, but the other aristocracy love them. They're specially made, one of a kind. And for goodness sake, don't... Talk like that around him. But the eggs don't do anything. Not true. One of them had a little horse and a carriage when you opened it up. Oh, I forgot about the horse and carriage. That bumps it up from completely bloody useless to rather extremely pointless. <coughs> Throw it on the egg pile, then. He hasn't given it to you yet. You know, if he got me a real horse and carriage with a boiled egg in it, that I would like. Provided I could ride my egg anywhere, of course. Get dressed. I don't want to. I'm just going to lay here all morning with Sebastian on my chest and smell his smelly cat breath. Isn't that right, Sebastian? Yes. We don't want to go and hear tales of the tedious court and legislation and whatnot. And we shall have cake. Cake, please, Viola. Now listen. Angel cake. And devil's food. I feel undecided as to my moral compass this morning. All right, you spoiled little twit. Come here. Ah, get off me. See? You scared him off with your meaty frame. I think I'll lounge on your ample décolletage. Hmm, it's quite comfy up here. I said get off my knockers. No, you're right. We'll call for cake. Make a morning of it. I can't breathe. Yes, you can. I'll scream. Nope. <laughs> There, the spell is cast. Now you can't say a word. Oh, this is 
peaceful. <laughs> hey, <laughs> be careful with me. I'm only little. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? <laughs> You're right, Viola. <laughs> now I'm up out of bed and I'm about to choose a dress. <laughs> you want your voice back? Yeah. Say please. <laughs> and down on one knee. <laughs> Say, please, Miss Viola, may I have my voice back? I promise I'll stop acting like such an obstinate little gobshite. <laughs> now, you have cake in your hair. You look like a royal nightmare. We'll leave Lord Aaron waiting a while longer. But you need a bath. Here. You never would have been this bold when I was younger. Yes, well, when you were younger, you were cruel and spoiled rather than just spoiled. You might actually have sent me away. Now you realize my inherent value. Well, I'm out of my bed. I suppose I must have my bath. And those silent spells of yours always leave me craving bacon for some reason. But I so wish I didn't have to breakfast with Aaron this morning. There's a snap in the air. Can you smell it? No, just cat. I caught it when you opened the window. Out there, my darling. Out there, adventure is waiting for us. In St. James's Park? Further. Through the cobblestone streets of London, past dark alleyways where dark plots are hatched every minute. Ugh, we've talked about this. We agreed that last time really would be the last. You could have been seen, kidnapped, killed. I'm not talking about sneaking out of the fights. Though I could really use getting into a proper walloping right now. I mean to go beyond the alleyways, sneak further to the outskirts of London and beyond that and further still, out into the wild countryside. There we shall find the real world and the real people far from these boring courtiers, silk sheets and poxy jeweled eggs. That's where I want to roam. You're forgetting, Gwen. I came from the real world, as you put it. I know exactly what sort of person lives there and it's nobody you want to meet. Out there, you'll find hairy, grotty little dwarves with unsavoury thoughts on their minds. Humans who don't give a flying fornication that you're royalty. And worst of all, lumbering, green-skinned acker with those protruding tusks and caveman foreheads, hulking, base-born savages all. And if they caught one glimpse of your succulent, ruinesque figure, They'd surely gobble you up in a trice. Well, if there were two or three of them, and they were very hungry. You cheeky bitch. Sorry, that was mean-spirited and oddly satisfying. I do like being called succulent, though. I meant truculent. Viola, I know that you don't like or trust anyone, but... But I dream of being out of this palace. I know I shouldn't, and I'm supposed to be a good little girl, but... But all the best intentions and warnings and reprimands in the world... can't stop my mind from wandering off. It betrays me, you know, my mind as I sleep. 
In my dreams I fly over the fields of England, through the night sky with all laid out before me like an embroidered blanket. I wish I could take you up there, Viola, flying onward and upward with the wind whipping through my hair, truly free. I, I wake up with my heart beating so fast, afraid I'm going to fall, but so excited. It takes me a moment to remember who I am. And then I'm in here again. And my whole life is laid out before me like an exquisitely crafted, one-of-a-kind china tea set. Complete with a jeweled egg cup. Princess, someone has to bring you back down to earth. And while I hate seeing that look on your face when I do, it's best if it'd be me. Come on, you can put on some riding clothes. Those will be acceptable for breakfast. That way you can make an excuse to take out Trumbull this morning. Yes, I suppose I can. There's my girl. have been listening to The Princess Thieves, written, edited, and produced by Alex Shaw, with a full cast. The performers for this episode were London Narrator, performed by Spencer Lieb, Robin, performed by Alex Shaw, Oberon, performed by Matt Wardle, Princess Gwendolyn, performed by Theo Lee, Viola, performed by Loretta Saylor. The Princess Thieves theme was Arrival by I. Sazanov of Shockwave Sound. Ashton Manor, Perspectives, Arcade, and the credits theme and Gevin, composed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Many soundscapes provided by Tabletop Audio and ASMR Rooms. The New Century Multiverse is funded by Patreon, and our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Datchler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. If you're enjoying this fifth story from New Century and would like to delve into the other adventures, they can be found as complete audiobooks on Bandcamp. 
Come check out the New Century Multiverse on Facebook where you can converse with the cast and myself and ask us, and indeed the characters, questions. And when you talk about this production on Twitter, be sure to use the hashtag PrincessThieves. And if you love New Century, introduce a friend to it. If absolutely everybody did that, we'd double our listenership. <laughs> <laughs>